Welcome to the Jig Is Up podcast with your hosts, Darcy and Jason. The Jig Is Up is recorded on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy, as well as the lands of Treaty 6 Nations. We aim to bring you new perspectives and open up conversations about Métis politics, culture, and current events, as well as stories that affect Indigenous from all over. If you like the show, or you don't, or if you want to send us suggestions for guests or topics to discuss on the show, feel free to email us at metispodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to follow us on all of the social media at Métis Podcast. All right, welcome back to The Jig Is Up, and uh, thanks for coming back and listening. How you doing tonight, Jason? Great, a little bit windy, a little bit snowy, but other than that, it's another day in the uh, paradise of the far north. That's right, absolutely. Um, so we got a, we got a jam-packed show. We got... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't even know what to call this episode because it's it's basically about one person and really is what it's mostly going to be about. Um, so let's start off with David Chartrand's statement um, against the Wet'suwet'en blockades. Um, you know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna read a few quotes from this and we'll we'll kind of talk about it as we go. So in his statement, he says, uh, "The eyes of Canada are watching now, as this conflict has escalated to protests and barricades." It has become a stage for environmentalists and sympathizers. And there are those with their own motives furthering their own personal agendas with no accountability back to the very people who live with the resulting long-term impacts for generations to come. These, and he uses quotes, uh, activists can walk away and never look back while the elected leadership can't because they must be accountable to those they represent. So let's start off there. What do you think of that, Jason? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it all smacks of the, the, I don't know, where to even start with that mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the one thing I, I think is going to be an, a running theme through all of this is he constantly makes statements about the elected leadership and how, you know, the, the elected leadership has to clean up the problems. The elected leadership has to do this. It's always about the elected leadership. And I I, I just, uh, I, I don't know, for me, I have a real issue with that because he he wasn't even elected. He was he, he won by default in his last election because nobody ran against him. Because the, the general apathy in the Métis Nation organizations of any, and they've, they made it so difficult for anybody to run against him, that I think people, it seems to be people that have generally just gone, you know what, screw it, it's not even worth trying. Um, so when he says elected leadership, he's not really elected. He's just there. He was the guy who who was eligible to put his name on the ballot where most people wouldn't be. So um, that's one of well, my first problems with that. Well, and, and that's the whole point in it. Um, a, it's, it's very hypocritical. But B is that he's giving preference to the idea of an elected official over a hereditary. And that was kind of what I took away from the statement. Is, you know, there's all these people with agendas and all these people with their fingers and what's going on. But really, you know, at the end of the day, in their home territory, uh, it's the elected officials. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I don't know what's happening there. You're awfully quiet, but we'll keep going. Um, oh, I'm not sure. But yeah, no. So that, that was a big problem I had with it is, is this, you know, constant push that it's, um, you know, there's a whole sidestep. He doesn't even talk about her being a great quarterback. There's a whole different group of people who are that have a voice and say what's going on. And he's only talking about the elected officials. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting a little bit of cutting out. I don't know if that what that is, but that's uh, we'll just keep going with the technical issues because that's fun. Um, but yeah, no, that's the thing. And I mean, he talks about these things. He talks about generalizations. He he talks about the he uses the talking points that that are just being used out there for all the anti-protester kind of talking points, which is that they're. You know, these quote-unquote activists are paid. They don't even know why they're there. Um, it's not even real Indigenous people that are protesting. And I guess what he doesn't understand is what solidarity means. Um, 
yes, there are non-indigenous that are protesting as well, but they're they're trying to protest in solidarity with, and I think that's something he clearly doesn't understand because he doesn't work in solidarity with anybody except himself. But um, <clears throat> that's a fact. <laughs> yeah. Right. So then he he goes on further to say. Uh, this internal matter, because he considers the Wet'suwet'en uh, land invasion um, an internal matter, has now caused a chain reaction of protesters across the country, blocking rail lines that deliver goods to all Canadians, affecting all aspects and quality of life. These protesters have not received the sanction of the democratically elected Indigenous governments to protest. These actions and the lack of dialogue arise from not respecting the roles and responsibilities of the elected leaders. <laughs> so Indian Act chiefs and council, those are the people we should all be listening to. Um, and Indian Act, or well, I guess not Indian Act, but government paid uh, people like himself. Those are the experts that we should be turning to, right? Well, and that's, it goes to that whole idea that the people, the grassroots people, shouldn't really be acting uh, without the, uh, you know, the blessing of these leaders. Yeah. And that's, again, we're, we're going to see this running theme where it's all about the elected leaders. And I hate to say it, but it, it sounds really narcissistic and really self-centered, which maybe is also a, a kind of a display of how he feels about himself. But... Um, well, and it's a real statement of trying to show uh, that that moving outside of this elected um, framework of where we believe in the democracy inside indigenous organizations is what the community is classifying is counterproductive. It's not productive to be doing these things outside of your elected official. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, who's electing these people? Like Indian Act Chief and Council, I mean... <laughs> That's forced government. Um, and, you know, there's lots of nations that are rejecting Indian Act chief and councils um, because they're they're literally a forced government system uh, paid for by the Canadian government, just like the MMF and the MNC and the MNA and all these Métis Nation organizations that get massive federal and provincial and, and funding. Like, it's not exactly like these guys are, you know... Uh, at arm's length with the government. They're cozied right up there, and in fact, they're sitting around the fire just hoping Trudeau throws another crumb on the floor. But I think that really is the point, that this is a, a position where he's stating, in a in a roundabout way, that this is an erosion of this the democratic system, and that's an erosion of, of his position in power. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it does, a lot of the things he's saying these days really speak uh, volumes to how insecure he seems to feel about his position. Um, now that the, you know, the three provinces have kind of done their own thing and blah, blah, blah. He, he seems really um, uh, insecure about about him as a, as a leader, quote unquote leader. Uh, so then he goes on to say, our Métis government will not endorse or support the protesters who are now on the verge of harming many innocent people who are not choosing sides on the pipeline issue. The elderly, people who are ill, youth, children, and all our relations will be affected. I pray that the protesters understand that they have been heard. Now is the time to ask ourselves, when will this stop? When will it be? Will it be when a life is lost or an illness worsened because these protesters and barricades? This will be on the protesters' shoulders to bear. Peaceful resolution is paramount. Compassion is vital on both sides. And when I read that, what I really get out of that is that um, uh, the harming of innocent people by the RCMP in, in by invading sovereign Wet'suwet'en territory matters not to the MMF and David Chartrand. Uh, the uh, innocent women and children that were arrested don't matter not to David Chartrand. Um, the destruction of trap lines and traditional lifestyles and traditional territories matters not to David Chartrand. But what he's really doing is sucking up to Trudeau and Canadians trying to be, you know, the good boy. And 
I mean, in that statement, he it's very clear he doesn't even understand what this is about. He thinks this is anti and pro pipeline, and that's not at all what this is about. So he doesn't even really understand the issue, from what I can see. Well, not only that, I'm not exactly sure how much medical supplies are shipped on CN Rail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a whole truckload of uh, you know medicine meant for the children and the elderly. That's just it's never going to arrive now. Like I'm not, I'm not sure. Like, what what protest is he talking about? That's putting the general populace of Canada in harm's way. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not 1876. We're not waiting for the the magic iron snake to roll into town before we get our Walmart goods. Well, exactly right. Exactly. So no, it's it's a real misdirection and a real inflammatory statement to say, oh, people's lives are on the line. You know, Joe Canada is, you know, life or death here, you know. Grandpa Bob at the hospital is not going to get his medical supplies because these, you know, rowdy Mohawk there are blocking up the railway. Yeah. Well, and I like how he says compassion is vital on both sides, but, okay, so where's the compassion when you have full militaristic uh, style um, RCMP SWAT teams, canine sniper units, to go in to arrest a bunch of people that are sitting in a camp with drums and, and uh, some trap lines and they're being peaceful. They're not, they're not being violent in any way whatsoever. So where's the compassion there? Where's the compassion for the, for the fact that they offered alternate routes? They just didn't want it in this particular location. There seems to be no compassion on that side. And he wasn't speaking out before about that stuff. But now, when he's got to please his master and and make sure that Trudeau continues to fund him, he's going to come out and say, oh my God, the poor Canadians that are going to be suffer from this. What about our Indigenous families that have suffered for hundreds of years now? Where's the compassion for that shit? Well, Darcy, they wouldn't be suffering if they would have, this protest would have been avoided if they just listened to their elected leaders. Right. That's right. I well, I forgot. I sh- I should know better, right? We should just listen to those those paid by the Canadian government. I'll clearly know what's best for everyone. I, mean, I should know better, right? Right. There'd be no need to protest because all the elected leaders signed off on that deal, and so it's all these nobodies who are stepping out of line, causing the problems. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, how dare the people actually stand up and and use their voice and use their uh, you know, free democratic charter of rights rights to actually protest. I mean, God knows they shouldn't do that. They should just do whatever their elected leadership tells them because that's clearly what David Chartrand does when Trudeau calls. <laughs> well, I think it goes to show, though, how colonized the this mentality is, is really what the, he's telling you is that your right to protest comes on election day. Yes. And- election is over then your leader is there to represent you for that time and do what's best for you during the next term of that election and so you should go back to you know whatever you were doing before you know and don't worry about it because your elected official has it and if they don't have it you can protest and vote them out of office at the next election yes but then but they get to set the rules on who can run for election so kind of a rigged system but it does scream it it, it, for me it's it is it shows just like you said how colonized they are and how um like it i mean this is this is like you're looking at metis people as though they're wards of the state as though and, and indigenous people in general as though they're wards of the state where one person gets to make the decision for all of them because clearly they cannot manage to make decisions on their own that's what he's saying to me. That's what he's saying. Well, at, at the very least, he's saying, leave the real business to leadership. People who are duly elected through the democratic process, they're the people who should be handling this. Yes. You know, protesting, getting all uppity, trying to bring in these hereditary people is all trying to circumvent the democratic system. Yes. And we know that he's going to go that way because that's where his power comes from. Well, absolutely. And I mean, what happens if uh, people start to see, 
you know, First Nations start rising up and start, you know, disavowing their chief and their Indian Act chief and councils and going back to a traditional system of governance. Uh, where what if Métis people start thinking that way? What? And you're already starting to see the breakup in Alberta of the MNA. I mean, these these so-called quote-unquote leaders that are electrically or democratically elected. Um, I think they're probably starting to feel a real pressure that they might lose their power. They might lose their, their ability to make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And I, I think they're getting real insecure about that. Yeah, and you, I think that it's going to go a long way into what keeps rolling out from their office because of what the provincial organizations are doing to, to circumvent the national Métis organization. They feel it's all undemocratic. They feel yeah. it's not transparent. It's all being done behind closed doors. Yes. Right? And there's, so it's like, oh, what's going on here? Where's the rule of law for Métis people? <laughs> exactly. How dare you speak out against the nonprofit societies we've created? Um, well, and it's interesting too because we we you know you go back a couple whatever a couple years ago or whatever we were talking about how you know he told a, a Winnipeg um, chief for the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs you know that they don't own the land. Uh, you have him constantly being pro resource extraction, pro pipeline, pro oil, pro anything, pro forestry, pro mining. Anything that he can possibly tag himself onto and make a, a few extra bucks, he's willing to just sell out for. Um, and so you kind of contrast that to what's going on. And, I mean, he's on a real slippery slope because what if Métis people started saying, you know what, that guy doesn't represent me. I'm going to turn in my card. I'm going to get them to remove me from their list, and I'm going to go to the next organization down the street that maybe better represents me, maybe better represents how I feel about these things. And, you know, uh, it's it's got to be a real difficult thing for him because he starts losing members, and then that really starts to affect funding. And, uh, you know, like you said, with the three provinces doing what they're doing, and then even within that we have, uh, you know, the breaking up of the M&A in a lot of ways, I, it's kind of their, their house of cards is, seems to be starting to fall apart a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's well overdue. I mean, we've been talking about that for a long time. But you see that insecurity come out about how they really feel about their position and the process. Yeah. And that's why he's not supporting what's going on yeah. is because it circumvents that process. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because I think the one thing that I'm, I'm always really interested when when David Chartrand says or anything or writes anything on the media, is just listening to the language he uses. So when he talks about these protesters, he talks about the, how they're harming Canada and how, how much damage they're doing. He never talks about, you know, praising them for standing up for what they believe in, for standing up for the rights, standing up in solidarity with uh, Indigenous people all across the nation. He doesn't talk about that. He talks about them as though they're the scum of the earth. And then you flip that to an article in December that he wrote um, that was printed in the Winnipeg Free Press where he was praising Enbridge uh, for raising the bar on the way it works with Indigenous. And he goes on to say, you know, building relationships is hard work and reconciliation is not easy. But with enlightened leadership and a genuine desire to make a difference and by working together, we are making progress on that difficult path. So he he uses this colorful, beautiful language for for resource companies and for resource extraction. And he talks about himself being an enlightened leader, may signing all these resource deals. And <laughs> and how they've that this is part of reconciliation. And to a lot of people, this is that's actually just more colonization. There's no reconciliation there. So I just think his language is very interesting how he uses it in different situations like that. Well, I think in that case, if you're really looking at uh, someone who's showing their age and isn't really with the times anymore, you know, it's it's not back in the 70s anymore where Métis people are trying to get a voice at the table. Um, a lot has happened in the last 50 years. You yes. know, the Métis people are not sidelined the same way 
they were when you know resource extraction deals were coming into play when consultations were taking place it's not you know it's not 1970 anymore yes and and so to talk about it in that context that metis people you know uh, because of his divine leadership is now got this voice at the table this this placed in the constitution where we have to be consulted is because of inspired leadership and progressive thinking well, that was a, that's a good sales pitch, but it's not in 1976. Yeah, absolutely. We, we have come a long way. And just because an oil field company is willing to consult with you and, you know, give due process and that oil company is legally obligated now to, you know, include the Métis people is not somehow reconciliation. No, no, not at all. Not at all, especially when you consider what they're doing to, um, you know, you know the Wet'suwet'en people, or you know what what they're doing is they're signing these deals, and it works great for guys like David Chardrand, but the people on the ground who actually have to live in these communities or live in these areas are are the ones that are suffering, and you know I I'm not pro oil or anti oil. I mean it's a necessary evil. We need it, and we have a million products that are use it. So I'm not saying that you know we need to be anti-pipeline, or I'm not saying we sh- shouldn't be anti-pipeline. Like, I think that the difference between what David Chartrand does and what what we're kind of talking about is he's telling people what to think. He's standing up and saying, "Well, I'm your leader, so do what I say and think what I tell you to think," um, which is you know a very <laughs> cultish attitude towards people. Um, and I know for me. It's more of if the communities don't want this or they want a different route, well, then we should listen to those communities. I mean, it's not my job to say what's good for the Wet'suwet'en people because I don't live there. <laughs> it's not my territory. And But I will say if they don't want it, I'd stand up with them because if they want it on a different path or whatever. I mean, that's that's where you know this whole notion of free prior and informed consent comes from. And what David's is saying is basically the, the you know he's trying to be a cult leader and saying, no, you just do what I tell you and do think what I tell you and say what I tell you, because I'm your all-knowing, enlightened, supreme leader that you guys elected through no process because nobody ran against me because I make the rules on who can run against me. Like it's it's such a ridiculous position to take, I think. Well, and I think you know you hit on a good point there, and that that really is where they've gone astray is to be able to always be on the outside so whatever indigenous issue is going on it seems the current metis leadership it always sides with the government yeah and it doesn't really matter what what it is we're talking about they always seem to be that way so you know we have the mohawk standing in solidarity with what's going on out there but where is the metis well the leader stands up and says huh, we don't agree with you guys blocking a pipeline yes and then they drag the elected you know the the elected chief of council into it saying oh see look and and honestly like i said why wouldn't he that's where his power comes from that's where his paycheck comes from that's where he would look to as authentic leadership but what that really shows is how out of touch he is oh absolutely and i think i think what many people i what i hope that they're waking up to is that you know, if, if these organizations represent your beliefs and, and represent how you feel, then then stick with them. But the truth is, is you know, even in UNDRIP, it says that, may, that Indigenous people can choose who represents them in governance. We don't have to stick with these organizations. If, you know, if you're pro-pipeline and you're, you're part of an organization that's anti-pipeline, you, you don't have to stay there. Um and, and so it's things like that where I think Métis people need to recognize their power. And their power in these organizations is not necessarily to get elected because we all know they, they made the rules so difficult that it's nearly impossible. But the power is in your membership. You know, you can phone and, and say, I don't want to be a member here anymore. Take me off your list. And there are other organizations out there that are, are great organizations, Um that want to represent the people and not just be some government-funded lackey that says yes to everything. Um, 
there's people that are leading other organizations that aren't looking to become millionaires or make 300,000 a year or whatever David Chartrand makes. Um, they just, they, they really just want what's best for the people. So for me, it's like, I, I hope that we, this starts a kind of a, a process of people rediscovering their power within themselves and within their communities, like we're actually starting to see in Northern Alberta, um, which mm-hmm. is communities saying, you know, enough's enough. You don't represent us because you have no idea what our community's about. So take a leap. <laughs> And I, I hope that that's a trend that continues. Yeah, I think we need to move past these gatekeeping organizations to, you know, what we're seeing happen in Alberta, and that is a community-first approach. We don't need provincial and national gatekeeping organizations. Absolutely. It, it really, there's nothing more colonial in structure than that, and why why for so long the Métis people have chosen to go this way, I'm not sure, but I, 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 I side with you on that. I hope that people realize membership is power and the more people who take out memberships with these organizations the more power they give them and the more people that cash out and pull their membership out of these organizations the more we can reform what's going on right now absolutely and i mean there's there's nothing to stop communities like you know edmonton calgary um even larger areas like even you know you could even do like southern alberta there's nothing to stop those the Métis in those areas from standing up and saying, you know what, we're going to form our own thing because we know what's best for us. People in Edmonton don't know what's best for our community in Medicine Hat, Lethbridge, Calgary, uh, you know, Edson. They, they just don't. And this this whole pyramid scheme that is a, is a non-profit society where one person is the, you know, the, the leader and, and an all-knowing leader who gets to make all decisions and tell people what to do and think is an outdated, antiquated, colonial style of governance. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I get his insecurities because he's living in, an, in, in a colonial system of governance and people are starting to turn and reject those colonial systems of governance. And I think that what's happened with the Wet'suwet'en has amped up a lot of First Nations feelings about, you know what, enough's enough. These chief and councils don't speak for the people, um, so on and so forth. And I think you're really starting to say that. And I hope I hope that these leaders in the Métis Nation cartel world are starting to feel the pinch. Well, what's funny is if they are, they're not showing it really because look what his statement still is, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Anti, you know, um, solidarity and pro-colonial power and resource extraction. Yes. So I'm not sure he quite gets the picture. I think he might be feeling attacked and vulnerable, but I think he they're living in the past. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, the it's just kind of a steady stream of of uh, garbage spewing out of this guy's mouth these days. Um, so it's not enough that he's, I know, basically speaking out against his entire, all, our entire First Nation Indigenous family and, and anybody who stands in solidarity worldwide with, with what's happening. Um, but now he's, you know, now let's take it down to, back down to the Ontario issue. Um, and he's used language like, uh, he's uh, said that Ontario is now the gateway for the Eastern invasion. So... Um, and we're going to get into this a little bit here right now, but I, I just want to, for me, again, it's the language he uses. Everything is about fear-based, instilling fear in people so that they come crawling back to those colonial leadership roles of, such as himself. You know, you're going to destroy Canada. You're going to hurt children. So unless you listen to me, um, you know, we're, you know, we're not going to get anywhere unless you listen to me. And now it's Ontario, you're going to, it's the gateway for the Eastern invasion, unless you listen to me. Uh, <laughs> so, very fear-based in trying to get people to, to follow what I'm starting to believe is, is more of a cult mentality in his mind than anything. Well, you always see that at the end, right? The desperate cling to power. They're being undermined um, by their provincial organizations, and 
to some extent, that's been helped out by the federal government signing these and, you know, governmental recognition agreements at the provincial level. And how they didn't see that was going to bite them in the backside, I have no idea. But, you know, you and I talked about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how, how do you sign a uh, agreement with the federal government to recognize Métis government at the federal level and then turn around and recognize Métis government at the provincial level? That's so, right. Who, yeah. who really is the Métis government? And now we're seeing that that really is the question, isn't it? Yes. Who Who is Métis government? Is it is it the provincial organizations? I don't know. Is it uh, the communities? Right. Because that's what's happening here in Alberta. So who really is Métis government? Right. And so what he's saying in his statement about this Eastern invasion of Red River-centric Métis identity politics is, Again, this idea of a nationalistic um, Métis organization that is a gatekeeper. Yes. Maybe it holds all the door, you know, it's it's guarding all the doors, it's locked all the windows, the alarm is set, and uh, it's going to be the only way to protect that Métis flag, that Métis national anthem, that Métis identity, is through the singularity of the Métis National Council's ability to gatekeep. Yes the safety of Métis identity. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, like you said, it's it's the death throes of what I think is a is a dying governance system and a dying organization where, well, we, the only thing we got now is to fear people into staying with us because there's really no good reason why they should stay with us at this point. But, you know, like, even with this uh, thing in Ontario, he uses language like, you know... Uh, this Eastern invasion is going to destroy everything that is Métis, Métis culture. Uh, all they want is to destroy Métis people and their history. And, and it's like, it's, I mean, that's, that's such garbage, first of all. Um, and as far as an invasion, I don't know what exactly people are invading because I'm pretty sure that's not the dictionary term of invasion when people want to stand up and be recognized. But, uh... <laughs> But you know, well, <laughs> what's odd about the whole thing in Ontario is it's not new. Yeah. Um, the, these communities being recognized aren't new. Yes. Like, that's not new news. They didn't just get recognized last week. That's right. You know, these these communities that have been deemed historic, that was a couple of years ago already. Yes. So where's the invasion? You know, has Ontario's membership role ballooned? You know, have they yeah. surpassed Alberta yet? Yeah. In you know, who represents the most amount of people? Our our my our bunch of Eastern Métis from like the, the Maritimes in Quebec all suddenly moving to Ontario to to invade. I don't I don't know. Well, even inside of the Ontario context, we haven't seen this mass ballooning of no. a membership. Not at all. You know, we have more people identifying as Métis on governmental census. But as far as the Métis National Council and its affiliates, uh, fear-mongering these mass numbers of people self-identifying, we haven't seen their offices overrun with memberships. No. And membership applications. Not at all. You know, we ha and so I, and again, like I said, it's not new. These aren't new communities that just last week got recognized by the Ontario government as historic Métis communities. These are long-standing communities like Sault Ste. Marie that, that have been recognized as, as Métis communities for a very long time. Well, so why the language of, of this inflammatory notion now that somehow Ontario has this out-of-control, vastly ballooning, membership role that now threatens the the rest of the territories yeah well that's just it i mean and you had david chartrand clem chartier all these people when when the Pauli brothers won their case they were you know standing right there screaming we won and this is the greatest thing for metis people and blah 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 and now sault saint marie is the gateway for the eastern invasion it just again, it's it's such hypocritical stuff. It's so blatantly obvious, uh, just garbage. That like I can't believe 
that he's been able to fleece people with these these ideas and and instill this nationalistic identity, but he does it through fear based. Um, you know who are the when you, when we talk, again we talked about this many times when when you look at all the statements he's made where he's anti-protester, anti-solidarity movement, anti-Witsuitan standing up for the rights. He's pro-resource, pro-Canadian government, pro-Canadians. Um, you know, he's all these things. And then he talks about the invasion of Eastern Métis who want to destroy the Métis people's culture and history. But aren't isn't he promoting the destruction of the Wet'suwet'en culture and Wet'suwet'en traditional territory? He's promoting the, you know, the the, the destruction of Métis rights everywhere that they are. Um, the Métis Nation of Alberta doesn't go to the First Nations for consultation on anything. They just they demand that they be heard. So again, you know, it's this hypocritical like well, we're we're Indigenous and we're leaders and we're an enlightened leadership. But yet he's going against everything that he claims, or they're doing everything that he claims Eastern Métis want to do. So I don't know if he sees it as competition, uh, but uh, but but they're doing the exact thing that they're trying to claim Eastern Métis are doing. Yeah, and that's the whole point, though, is that duplicity. You're able to say with one hand, I don't, you know, we're the leadership, we're the duly elected leaders, right? And so this is what we decide has to happen. Yeah. And so when you're looking out at BC, do you see all the problems they're having? Well, that's because they're not following their elected leadership or this wouldn't be a problem. Exactly. Yeah. And then, but at the same time, then they turn around and say, now look at this internal Métis problem. This is because of governmental interference in determining who is historically Métis and who's not. Yeah. And this is what we've seen them do over the course of the last two years since they did that blue blob map release is it's it's the look at my left hand and then they close that oh now look at my right hand and they close that and then they just keep swapping them out yeah and hopes that you don't catch that they got two different arguments going on at the same yeah absolutely and he goes on to say in this this statement um he says uh you know he, he goes on to say uh, you know um continues with he you can just pop up and say you're metis and that's what's happening in eastern canada it's starting to happen in Ontario. So there's a clear issue we are facing that we are calling the third invasion. The first two invasions were the Red River Resistance and the Northwest Battle. So he's basically declaring war on anybody from Eastern Canada claiming to be Métis. And I don't know of anybody except for him that's calling this the third invasion. But uh, again, what a what an amped up rhetoric to try and instill fear in people, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's totally negates the real facts. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Are more people claiming to be Métis today than there was 10 years ago? Absolutely. That's a fact. Yep. Have the numbers increased more in Quebec and Ontario? Well, according to StatsCan, the answer to that is yes. Is that surprising? Well, given the fact that Alberta has 4 million people and Quebec has 8, I would think proportionately their numbers should be more, wouldn't you think? I would think so. And last time I checked in Alberta, the amount of people who self-identify as Métis is over 100,000 people, and yet the Métis Nation of Alberta's membership role is only at about 40-some thousand, they say. Yes. So... Are the numbers increasing for people who are self-identifying as Métis? Yes. Is that concerning? Probably. Should we do a good job at validating those claims? Absolutely. Is that translating into ballooning numbers within Chartrand's organization? No. Not at all. Are communities like Sault Ste. Marie in Ontario being overrun with these new self-identifying Métis people? I haven't heard. Yeah. Clearly not. They're not, you know, you and I are fairly well plugged into the system, I think, and in the Métis world, and we haven't been bombarded with people saying, ho, ho, you know, we got Métis organizations popping up all over the place, our organizations overrun, we can't keep up with all these memberships. Right. It just isn't happening. Like No. Like, 
then yes, according to StatsCan, more people are self-identifying as Métis. Yes, more people in the East are self-identifying as Métis than in the West at a higher percentage rate. But given the fact that Ontario and Quebec hold the bulk of the entire population of Canada, that's not a surprise. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it, it, you know, that's a really simplistic way to view identity and view the historic, um, the way Canada has purposely gone out of its way to try to destroy, you know, Indigenous families, Métis families, Inuit families, um, through various things like Indian Acts, you know, residential schools, scoops, um, you know, missing and murdered people, uh, you know, Human human trafficking at some point is some of the things I heard from residential school survivors. So I mean, when you when you look at how they've generationally destroyed families, I mean, I know probably I've probably come across at least a dozen people just in Calgary, uh, most of whom who have actually gone on to get their MA membership, uh, only because it it's kind of like their final vi- ver- uh, verification of their identity. But these are people that are reconnecting to a, an identity that was forcibly stolen from them. And so there's there's like a lot of nuance to this rise of populations. Yes, it's 2020 and people finally can actually openly admit they're Métis, whereas 50 years ago they would have been kicked out of their home and forced onto the road allowance. Or, you know, like, so the, it's very simplistic just to go, wow, there's a rise, oh my god, it's it's Armageddon, it's the invasion. But there's there's so much nuance to that that and, the, and he's just simply not capable and not willing to talk about that because it doesn't fit the narrative and the fear mongering that he wants it to to portray. So it, it's it's quite sad to see you know enlightened leadership act this way. Well, and let's face facts: uh, the government has paid you know fifty five million dollars to the MNC registry, and since doing so, they've spent the last decade being abs- reductive in every measure yes. who qualifies for membership the historic you know definition of being Métis in 2002 um, yep. was further reductive in nature and so is it any wonder now that Métis people are reconnecting I mean we have the ability through ancestry through these other sites to be able to retrace our you know, heritage and find our ancestors like never before because of technology. Yes. And instead of embracing that and welcoming people home into their our communities and into their way of life and value system, there's these organizations that feel they're gatekeepers. Oh, yes. you know, you know, you've got to have X, Y, and Z on your paperwork or, you know, Lord help you, you're, you're not one of us. Exactly, yeah. Well, and the, but there is good news from something he said, and I, so I, you know, I thought this would be very interesting because we actually talked about this when the Blue Blob map first came out. Uh, so he goes on to say in this uh, interview he did about the Eastern Invasion on APTN, of course. Uh, he says if uh, they want to go to court, and he's talking about Eastern Métis here. If they want to go to court and fight for them, fight for yourselves, go ahead, do like we did, <laughs> which is funny. Uh, we waited 200 years to get where we are, so go and fight your Métis rights if you want to classify yourself as Métis. But you're not part of the Métis of our nation. So he's, again, we talked about this when the Blue Blob map came out and Clem made statements. They're saying, you can be Métis. There's Métis anywhere there that you want. You just can't be part of our organization, which is, can they call the nation, but it's really just a nonprofit organizational name. So yeah, they're saying trademarked. Yeah. So Métis go go be Métis, but not not with us. Just go be Métis yeah. somewhere else. So mm-hmm. it makes it very clear to me that he's saying there's Métis in Eastern Canada. They're just not part of our organization, which I think is fair. So Eastern Métis, yeah, and, and, go ahead and now. You and I have you and I have said that before. Yeah. There's a hundred thousand Métis people self-identifying Métis people in the province of Alberta. Yeah. There is absolutely no reason why there shouldn't be one, two, or more uh, ways to represent those Métis people. Absolutely. And and we're just now starting to see, you know, how long have we been doing this show? And 
we're just now starting to see that the realities of that come true. We have the settlements in Alberta. Yep. We have the Métis Nation in Alberta. Yep. And now we have the new said, you know, these new communities in a breakaway to form their own federation of Métis communities. That's right. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not threatening. That's not divisive. It's Métis people finding the best way to get represented in the colonial structure for the people in their communities. What's wrong with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, on top of that, you've had, I think, the North Slave Métis Alliance has been in operation for a long time. And I believe that's in northern Alberta. Uh, you have the, the you know, Yellowknife Métis Nation, which is not part of the actual cartel. Um, and, you know, so you have these organizations all over Canada that are separate and just as good and just as representative. And so I, I, I always go back to the fact that, you know, like the UN uh, Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People says, you can choose who represents you. You don't have to... The government can't tell you to become part of the Métis Nation or join this organization. They, I mean, they try to with their funding and not allowing anybody else to get funding. But the truth is, is you can go pick your, who represents you. You can choose your, 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 who, who your government is as far as Indigenous governments. So I think it's a great thing. I think, um, I think they're... They're, I think they realized a while ago that their opinion and their, their attitude is on a, a very slippery slope um, when it comes to Métis. I mean, it doesn't follow a lot of Métis elders that I've met don't follow the definition of these cartel organizations. And I think they're just now just finally getting to the point where they're saying, yeah, you can be Métis, but you're not our kind of Métis, and, which I think is fine. I don't really need to be your kind of Métis, right? Like... If I could, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd join your organization, even if I could, because I really don't want you to represent me. <laughs> well, and I think that's the whole point. We we live in a society, and we, as Indigenous people, it's always been our way that you form clan and kin groups based on what suited you, what you needed, what how, how it was supposed to work, and what worked yeah. in the east didn't work on the prairies, and what worked, you know, and didn't work on the coast. So we, we've adapted to the land as we've had to and family-wise over the generations. Why would it be any different today if you want to be part of an organization, find one that fits you? There's nothing wrong with that. But trying to create a gatekeeping, portal-restrictive identity, you know, bloodhound, that says it's this way or no yeah. way at all, Yeah, I think is that is where we've gone wrong. And I think we're finally coming full circle in this conversation to see they're even admitting, like we've heard before, you can be Métis. You just might not be able to apply for membership with their organization. That's right. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, the Métis Nation, we talked about this in a previous episode where they're, they're breaking away from this, you know, cartel, you know, top-down, unaccountable kind of quote-unquote democratically elected governance of the MNC. But at the same time, they're also putting the same fear-based you know, BS out there about these communities in northern Alberta that want to separate. The same fear-based stuff that Chartrand is spewing about the separation, you know, the Ontario-Alberta-Saskatchewan tripartite alliance and all that shit. They're kind of spewing the same fear-based mongering bs and it, it's actually quite hilarious to watch um and you mentioned this in the previous episode that it's you know you you don't like what the mnc is doing but you also don't like that your communities are standing up because and saying the same thing about you <laughs> so um and i, I yeah, say, exactly and it it's a good show though to show how colonized these organizations have become totally. really is their language any different than a politician running for re-election, trying to hang on a gold-plated pension, trying to get that next four-year term. Mm -hmm. the, what these Métis leaders are doing in the public eye is no different than what a, a Canadian politician would be doing. Yeah. Yeah, trying to just trying to keep that little piece of power that they have, make sure they get that salary and, you know, get their, their money. So, um 
And I, I, I actually, somebody posted this. Uh, I guess this was an email that the Métis Nation of Alberta sent out to people, its members. I don't know how many members, if it was all of them. Uh, and they go on to say, basically, they're trying to rally Métis people to go against these communities in northern Alberta that want to separate. And <laughs> some of their points are hilarious. So they're really going after Fort Mackay because they're kind of the, uh, I think, the the leader in, in getting people to wake up and realize communities have power. So they're, they, they point out that the Fort Mackay Métis Community Association is a private entity incorporated under the laws of Alberta. It is controlled by a few individuals and is not accountable to any rights-bearing Métis community or the Métis Nation. So, uh, but the private entity incorporated under the laws of Alberta is exactly what the Métis Nation of Alberta Association is. It's controlled by a few individuals. Yeah, just like the Métis Nation of Alberta Association is. And what's really funny, I thought, was they're not accountable to any rights-bearing Métis community, but Fort Mackay is a rights-bearing Métis community, so they're accountable to themselves. Are they not? So that was one of the points. There's like four points here, but that was the first one, and I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, it makes me chuckle. Right? Uh, they go on to say there's no clarity on the Fort Mackay Métis uh, Community Association's membership. Uh, so their membership is you have to be a member of their community and they have to approve you. So community approval is key there. Uh, some of them, its members are registered as First Nations. Well, there is a Fort Mackay uh, First Nation as well that then they do live in the town, but I don't know if they actually get a voting right in the Fort Mackay Métis. Um, so, you know, a bit of an overstretch there. Um, and some do not even live in Fort Mackay and may not even be Métis. Well, that's just pure fear-based, you know, fear-mongering with no facts to support that whatsoever. But it's you don't need facts. Yeah, right? No, facts, facts. What are those? This, this is, all of it is just completely political. Absolutely. And, uh, it's, and it's exactly what you said. It's fear-mongering. It's political grandstanding. It's hmm. easy to, on one hand, Try to throw all off your overlord in the Métis National Council. Yeah. But to be thrown off as the overlord, well, that's a different thing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and they kind of just go on to continue to fear monger and fear monger. Um, you know, they bring up, bring up the fact that Ron Quintal ran for president of the MNA and and fa- and lost. So then now he's just a disgruntled. Uh, guy who was, you know, taking his toys and going and playing a new sandbox. and But what he's doing is all immoral and illegal and, you know. But I'm like, well, you know, if the community decides it, I don't I don't really think you have a leg to stand on there. But um, but I, I do think it's interesting that they're both fighting these fights on both ends. David Chartrand is fighting here on the, you know, what we'll call the national level, even though it's not national. And then the Alberta is fighting the same fight using the same kind of language on the provincial level. So I, I just thought those are very interesting uh, similarities of hypocrisy and, and fear. Well, to the office and see if that's in the official Métis Nation handbook of political strategy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I, again, I get a kick out of this whole concept of democratically elected when you're elected by less than 10% of your overall membership, I don't know if you really are elected <laughs> or if some of your friends showed up at the polls and decided to vote for you. Like, come on. that Like, that is so not representative of anybody. You, you essentially represent 3,000 people in Alberta is what you represent, 3,000 Métis, because those are the only ones that voted. Um, so I, I just get a kick out of that too. Thought I'd throw that but in. What, but to go one further, for me personally, what bothers me is at what point in indigenous community and indigenous conversation did democracy become king? Yeah. What happened to indigenous governance models? What happened to indigenous, you know, forms of governance? Yeah. When did this colonial construct of democracy being is the only valid form of governance. Yeah. 
And yet we have Chartrand goes on about saying, you know, your your democratically elected officials are all that matter. You know, we have the in Alberta, it's like, well, these people are doing this and it's not democratic. Well, when in you know, when did democracy become the gold standard by which indigenous communities govern themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I think we actually could probably put a fine a year for that. I think it was likely around the time that I don't know Britain was kind of colonizing the whole the whole uh, continent. Um, pretty sure that's when it kind of came became a concept. <laughs> but it, it just shows as uh, people, you know, here we are. Canada's one hundred and fifty blah years old. How hard it is to shake this construct. Yeah, that we as Indigenous people had traditions of governance that weren't this idiotic idea of duly elected officials. You know, there are other ways to govern that are better, that are more effective, that provide more accountability. We need to stop looking to this colonial construct of saying, well, you have to have a board and you got to have your five members on your board. Yeah. You know, when, when did this become the king? Stankovar standard for which we form our organizations or even come up with leadership. You know, mob mentality now determines who is in charge as a Metis leader. Well, that's not exactly historically correct. Yeah, absolutely. And and the fact that the way they've structured it is essentially one person has all of the power after these so-called elections. That is that that isn't democratic in any way, shape, or form. There's no check and balance on these things. Um, you know, even in you know the U.S. and Canada, there's an attempt to put checks and balances in place through Senates and you know in the states it's Congress and uh, you know the House and in here we got the opposition and we got the Senate and um, so there well, how is about something. How about something as simple as uh, if you're going to stick with this democratic system? Of term limits. You know, these Métis leaders yeah. want to have it both ways. They want people to look at them like they're some kind of hereditary chief because they've been in power for 30 years. But then at the same time, they want to throw out the fact that, no, I'm democratically elected. And so those other hereditary chiefs, well, they have no business being anybody. Yeah. And, and this duality is, is brutal on trying to keep these guys to any kind of accountability because they just are out in left field. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think they've done a good job of convincing people uh, like they've said stuff that you know they've they've kind of convinced people that this is the only system of governance and it is just simply isn't true. And I think with the rise of, you know, um, more traditional gov- systems of governance and, you know, certainly the hereditary chiefs and Wet'suwet'en. I think once you start seeing the rise of this stuff, I think everybody starts to wake up and go, wait a minute, why Why are we using these non-profit corporations where David Chartrand's real loyalty is to make sure that the non-profit corporation stays viable, not necessarily to any people? Um you know, and so I, I think people may start waking up, and and I hope that they do, and I hope that they they start listening to more leaders of the people, like uh, even though Christy Bellacourt, even though she's not in a leadership position, she, she certainly is a leader amongst people. Um, and you know, start listening to people like that, start listening to elders, start going back to to traditional styles of governance, and and realize that these nonprofit corporations do not have the best interest of anybody except the nonprofit corporation in mind. Um, and that's, I mean, that's what I hope. That's I, We've hoped that for quite a number of years now. But um, I, I really feel like it's kind of starting to happen. I feel like people are starting to wake up and realize that the David Chartrands of the world are absolutely not people who represent, you know, me or my beliefs. And I think... Uh, I think it's a good thing for people, and I think it's a bad thing for these uh, corporations that are just trying to hold on to their government funding as desperately as they can. Well, like we've said before, most of these leaders are on their way out. Let's be honest. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, how many more years do you honestly think they're going to be in power? And they're going to try to hang on to power as long as they can. But 
this is already a house of cards that's uh, not being able to stand up to a stiff breeze. So I think yeah. change is in the wind. I think change is coming. You know, change is slow. Uh, it's herky-jerky and it's uneven. But I think it's coming. As younger people, you know, the, the generation behind you and I uh, are waking up to the fact that there is a big difference between being Indigenous and having the Indigenous structure. And yes. I think they look at their personal lives when they get out of bed and they look at the mirror and they see an Indigenous person. But when they talk about their organizations, they see clearly that these are colonial constructs. And you see this very much in the conversation all the time when you talk about the AFN and more and more all the time about the, the cartel. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think... I think that's a great way to end tonight's show is just uh, with that kind of almost a little bit more of an upbeat ending. Um, and I, I, I just, I hope, I hope people realize and, and see what exactly these leaders really stand for. Um, and if they're not supporting community desire to be autonomous, if they're not supporting uh, their own people standing up in solidarity with the rest of our Indigenous family, then I think you really have to question, like, where are these people's priorities? And uh, like you said, I, I, I think that the younger generations are starting to really key into that. So very hopeful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, so I don't know. I guess that's all I got tonight. I don't know if you have any more ranting and raving you want to do or if you have any anything you want to share with us and lighten the world with anymore. But, uh, <laughs> oh, I could rant and rave a long time about these guys, but <laughs> I think that's probably enough for one night. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, uh, you know, for both of us again, uh, thanks for listening. And until next time, the jig is up.